Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melenic, and today we are talking with Nick Deeks, Managing Director of WT Partnership. Nick is a highly trained, highly talented, forward-thinking leader who is known for driving a range of infrastructure and construction initiatives across Australia. He has spoken at length about why population growth, a very topical subject at the moment, uh, and increasing urbanisation demands we build smarter cities. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Nick Deeks. What is a smart city? I mean, in your opinion. Okay, so the first part, no, it isn't smart. There's nothing smart about what we're doing, playing catch-up. And most of us, most of the infrastructure work that's happening is geared around um, political issues. Uh, politics shouldn't come into infrastructure. If we need to build infrastructure, then we need to build it. We don't need to build it to try and get a certain number of votes to get through the next election. Business case analysis of how we uh, financially analyse infrastructure projects needs to change. It's about use, overall use and requirement. I, about 15 years ago, we had the northwest sector and southwest sector in Sydney. Major developments, 30,000 dwellings being built in those two areas. The infrastructure didn't get built, and it's only now that's being built with the northwest rail line. They wanted to build the projects build the housing, get the population in, to be able to increase or, or obtain funds that could then help to support the infrastructure. That's around the wrong way. The infrastructure should be built before we build the suburbs. Okay. Unfortunately, that's New South Wales for you. <laughs> the, so... You're saying that that the, the first part that isn't really then very smart, is it? That's a that's a particularly um, inefficient way of doing it's, things. It's I, very I th- inefficient and it's okay. pork barrel. Um, it's it's not smart. It's not the way to be doing it. The reason, that, another reason, it's not smart is it's not innovative infrastructure that we're building. So one of the things that's not smart. Take the M2. So we build the M2. Which part of it? <laughs> <laughs> Lane Cove Tunnel going out. Right, okay. Um, where's that? 10, 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Over the last five years, the contractors have gone back and added another lane to the M2 because the traffic was so um, so heavy that they couldn't move. So the cost of adding a lane yeah. post building the motorway or adding a tunnel is probably 10 times as much. So is that an issue of um, short-term thinking or um, the accountants are running the asylum or what is the... Uh, I, think, I think most of it is, um, is short-term thinking. As a quantity surveyor, we've probably got to hold our hands up in some of this because we are constantly looking at value engineering projects to try and reduce cost. So we will look at alternative ways of building. It's really about... with, with uh, road tunnels, it's really about the traffic modelling. And as I said earlier, it's about the, the financial analysis that you do. It's not about how many cars you get on the road and how much you can charge as a toll to then pay for that project. The same with a rail project. It's not about how many passengers you can get on and how much you, pay for, you charge for a ticket. The infrastructure, if it's needed, should be needed, and we need to find another way to fund them. So that's not, that's not a smart way of doing it. How can coming back and 
retro building another lane on the motorway be cost effective and uh, smart? I think you just demolished Thatcherism. <laughs> I mean, it's same thing, the same thing has happened in the UK. So it's not that Australia is, you know, particularly miles behind. I think everyone's far behind. The M25 uh, constantly has a new lane added. And by the time they've gone around the whole circumference of the M25, hallelujah, the traffic is as bad as it was when they started. So they build another lane. It's like painting the fourth road bridge. By the time you've got over to the other side, yeah. it's taken so long, you need to start painting and going back again. Okay, so that's the bad way of doing things. Oh, the, the non, I would say, non-efficient. Um, tell me your idea of, of the better way of doing things. Well, I think what we need to do from a transport sense is look a hundred years ahead. Wow, okay. Not 10, 20 or 50. So we're getting excited about the metro. There's nothing exciting about the metro. We're getting excited about the light rail. There's nothing exciting about the light rail. The London Underground was built in 1863 and still functions. Okay. Wow. That's 150 years. Wow. Of transportation foresight. And it's not that Australia hasn't done it. The Sydney Harbour Bridge was 1932-ish. Yeah. Thereabouts. The amount of lanes that they put on the Sydney Harbour Bridge at the time was far in excess of what they needed. But it still is able to cope with the amount of traffic that is going over it north to south every day. So that was futuristic thinking. The London Underground was futuristic thinking. The metro system in New York was futuristic thinking. The metro here is not, and the light rail is not. We had trams crisscross in Sydney from 1920 to 1960. Perfectly capable, for perfectly mm. adequate. Mm -hmm. And then we decided to rip them up because we didn't need them. And now here we are in 2018, laying down tracks, essentially a light rail. Cost of $2 billion, major disruption to the city. Yeah. Um, and the wider impact of that poor judgment and poor thinking will have to have an impact on tourism. During 2000, when the Olympics were on in Sydney, outside of Australia, the rest of the world doesn't really see Australia, didn't really see Australia as a tourist destination. So in 2000, when the Olympics were on, major media coverage. Mm -hmm. Everybody who came here had a fantastic time. The world's press was on Sydney. People went home and said, what a fantastic place. You've got to go on holiday to Sydney. There was, a, there was an uplift in tourism. There's an uplift in the economy, in retail, in all associated fields. So now we're in the situation where the, the boats are coming into Circular Quay every day. The airports are chock-a-block. The roads are hectic. Any tourist who comes to Sydney now and walks down Circular Quay or walks down George Street would surely be going home and saying, you know what, Sydney's a basket case. Mm -hmm. Don't go there for the next five, ten years. Yeah. Now, how long is that economic downturn going to impact on Sydney? Yeah. So mm -hmm. thinking smarter about cities, who thought about that? Let's get all of that work done at the same time. Let's do Barangaroo. 
let's do running around to Walsh Bay and around to the rocks, Circular Quay. All the projects that are happening at Circular Quay. We've got Goldfield House being knocked down, turned into residential. Uh, Lend Lease have got a $1.5 billion project happening on the site where Jackson's on George was. Uh, we've got the Opera Residence where the Coca-Cola building used to be at the end of Circular Quay. We're then looking at upgrading all the ferry wharves around Circular Quay. That is a very important part of the city. Yeah. It's the gateway to the city. That's what everyone should be looking at. Again, that's another project that's going to be happening at the same time. So even in that area from Barangaroo round to Circular Quay, we've got another 10 years' worth of congestion. It's going to be fantastic when it's finished, but that's not very smart. It's not planned very well. A major, major disruption. And having lived in the city for three years, I can tell you it is a real pain. Does technology or can technology play a, a role in, in mitigating some of this? I mean, we, you know, we can... I'm not sure whether there's a panacea for political mistakes. Um, is there technology that we can use? Is it like modular technology to speed things up. Is there other technology that we can employ to perhaps negate some of these issues? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think in terms of the construction techniques we really haven't changed the way we build in a long time. One of the examples I put up in um, some of my presentations, particularly at the prefab conference, was a pub in London in Wapping called the Prospect of Whitby. And it was built in 1521. Okay. It's the oldest riverside pub in London. That pub was standing when Henry VIII was the king. Okay. It looks like a house now. It's got bricks, it's got windows, it's got a roof, it's got downpipes, it's got a front door. Where has, what's happened since 1521 to 2018 in terms of our construction techniques? Well, Henry VIII's no longer around, that's, that's one change. Well, that's one change, that's probably a good thing. Um, so we really haven't innovated that much. There are a few um, new ideas coming around, and they do talk about prefab and modular. But prefab and modular was new in 1837, in 1855 when they built the first hospital. Really? It was reasonably new in 1944 after the Second World War when the UK built 100,000 homes. Wow. Now it's only coming, being talked about as though it's a, a new concept. Contractors won't embrace modular or prefab construction. Purchasers of houses don't want their house to look like it's modular. There's a, there's a preconception that everything's going to look the same. Yeah. But ultimately, maybe everything does need to look the same. We have to change the way we think about our housing, about our commercial buildings, about our retail centres, about our cities. So to loop this back to your question earlier about what is a smart city, a smart city is one that can accommodate a growing population, that can move people around in a timely fashion, that has multi-purpose, multi-use buildings that doesn't have congestion problems, that operates in a 24-7 environment. That's interesting. So... One of the things that we're being taught, well, we're hearing here is that cities becoming more high-density living. So we're talking 
oh, I don't know, Manhattan, Tokyo, Hong Kong, whatever, whatever, whatever template, international template you want to use. Um, is that the most functional, most smartest way of doing things in terms of um, uh, you know building? And if if it is, how do we do it well, or who does it well? I mean, I don't think we do it well yet. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but who does it well? Um, they do it fairly well in America. Okay. So they are doing prefabrication up to 50 stories in America. Um, in terms of New York or Hong Kong, small apartments, higher density. I think that we ultimately do need to be going there. We've got a million extra people coming to New South Wales and a million extra people coming to Victoria over the next 10 years. So we're 23, 24 million people now. Um, we've got a huge population increase and very fast growing. Where do we put them? We can't put them all out in the suburbs because we don't build the infrastructure to get them to move into the city. So if we're going to think about how we build smart, what we need to have is satellite cities and then to be able to connect people. So if you want to move people out to Penrith, then let's have a city outside of the CBD that they can travel to and not get everybody to come into the middle of the city. In terms of the overall size of apartments, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll say this from experience of moving from a house into the city into an apartment, you ultimately don't end up doing too much cooking at home. The way you live will change. So if we've got good infrastructure around us in terms of retail, restaurants, uh, your everyday kind of shops that are accessible for everyone living in apartments within the city, then the, the need for a kitchen is, is really negated um, because you'll go out and that's mm -hmm. what you tend to do. Mm -hmm. I spent two and a half years doing it and that's exactly what was happening to me. And I didn't make a conscious decision to be doing that. That's just what happens. You end up going out. So I think your apartment is going to end up being smaller. They need to get smaller, one, because we've got more people and we've got a lack of space. So we need smaller, skinnier, taller buildings. We're then stuck with the regulation about height. Right, okay. So New South Wales' height limit is less than other states. Why, why is that? Um, there's issues around the flight path. There's issues around overshadowing. Right, okay. Um, but we have got, I think Crown is probably going to be the tallest the tallest building, 67 stories maybe, 220 metres. Uh, Melbourne have got 300. They're looking at planning buildings to get to 400. There's no real height restriction in, in Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, so until we can break through that barrier, then we're confined in how much we can put on one particular site. So regulation around... FSR and then the overall overall height that we can build to are two things. But let's take this regulation out of the equation. If we can build whatever we wanted to build, I think that residential apartments in the city need to you need to be able to get more people in there. But you need them to be able to be a multifunction centre. So you want to be able to have some retail. You want to be able to have some leisure. You want to be able to have some common area right. within that building. And probably some commercial, because commercial buildings are changing, and the way people work within a commercial building is changing. 
So you go from an office that used to be a static environment. Everyone had a desk. Everyone had paper. Everyone had photos of their family on that desk. They're out of the office. No one else can use that desk. So as a general rule, it's about 58, 60% occupancy rate within an office. So that other 40%, the desks are free. Right. So we're going to be changing that. That will change. Okay. And we've lived through this as well. So we were in our North Sydney office for uh, 37 years. We moved to the city two and a half years ago. We moved from exactly that very paper-based, static, okay. everyone was in offices, everybody had filing, to an open, agile, no fixed desk. You've got to enable some technology to come along with mm-hmm. that to, to be able to do it. In our environment now, every, every desk is clear every day. So you walk in in the morning, you've just got a clean slate, you go and sit wherever you want to go and sit and carry on working. So, and this is not a new concept, but we've got 132 people on about 105 desks. Right. So you've got a much better utilization mm-hmm. factor. Where that's going to be going in the future is, and I, se- I put an article out, a bit tongue-in-cheek about this, maybe six months ago, saying the utilization of an office space. You pay 24 hours for that office space to rent it. You may have staff in there from 7 till 7. Mm. And then from the other 7 till 7, it sits empty. So why haven't we got alternative companies using the same office space? That's an interesting point. I put that out. I started getting inquiries saying we'd be interested to lease your space during the night shift, which obviously we're not ready for just yet. But if that happened, then you've got, I mean, it would be foolish to say half the workforce would want to work the night shift Mm -hmm. and half would want to do the day shift, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, let's say there was 20%. So 20% of the traffic right. going to work yep. is now not mm-hmm. coming at the same time. Mm-hmm. The next phase on from there is as the workplace becomes far more flexible, not everybody comes into the office every day. So you don't even need that same amount of space for the same amount of people that you did five right. years ago. Right. So say that halves again. And people come in to collaborate and to, and to talk and for various project matters. So you've now got a floor plate, say it's 1,000 square metres. You only need 500 square metres of that for your collaborative workforce who are coming and going sporadically. So the, the other 500, half of your floor space could be used by another organisation. And then you've now got, so you've now got two organisations during the day. You could have two during the night. So you've now got four businesses that could use the same space. So whilst you've got cloud-based servers, it becomes a lot easier. It's a lot more open and agile. You come in with your computer, you sign on, you sign on to your Wi-Fi, and you start using data from your cloud. So in a commercial building, utilization, that becomes smart. There's smarter ways of working. There's smarter ways of understanding people's um, productivity rates and the amount of space that you need and the efficiency. Understanding how people work and operate. Not everyone is performing well at 9 o'clock in the morning, Mm. but we have this 200-year-old concept of it's an eight-hour workday and it's five days a week. 
why is that still relevant? It was 200 or over 200 years ago that we came up with that concept, a 40-hour week. I'm not saying everybody works a 40-hour week, but that's generally the guiding principle, mm -hmm. is that it is Monday to Friday, eight hours a day, nine till five. So everyone is coming to work at the same time. Everyone is going home at the same time. <coughs> it puts pressure on our public transport systems. It puts pressure on the roads for all those who still drive into work. So if we can find a smarter way of moving people in and out of the city, then that alleviates a lot of that pressure. Mm -hmm. So again, that's another step to becoming a smart city. The next is around the building materials and the building techniques. As I said earlier, we're still building essentially how we were 500 odd years ago. We still have bricklayers. Now there's nothing against any bricklayers out there that's, that are listening, but um, it's a redundant industry. Yeah. To see a bricklayer these days just uh, amazes me. It's a bit like seeing a guy hanging off of a rope on the side of a building cleaning <laughs> a window. Why is that such a manual process? When yeah. we've got AI, robotics, mm -hmm. machine learning, mm -hmm. but we've got a guy on a rope hanging down a building, <laughs> cleaning a window. They were, they were here last week next right. door, actually. But you see them, on, you see them yeah. in the city on a high-rise building. Yeah. I mean, not only is it dangerous, but how time-consuming. Why haven't we got a little mechanical device that is doing that? Or why don't we have smart glass that is self-cleaning? And there are a few other examples about how yeah. we really need to kind of change that. So some of that's being held back by unions. Some of it's being held back by fear and fear of change. Mm -hmm. But we can't fear change because change is happening. Mm -hmm. So fearing it is just putting your head in the sand and mm -hmm. you're going to miss it. Yep. Because it's not going to stop just because you're fearing it. Mm -hmm. So next year, Fast Brick Robotics out of Perth have got a machine called the Hadrian X. Right. Which is a robotic bricklayer. Wow. So it will lay, it does a 3D print, and it will, it will build the bricks. It does all the mortar. It's got a 20 or 30 meter boom. It can lay every brick for a house in two days compared to a crew of bricklayers that would do it in two weeks. Wow. And no smokos, no, 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 exactly. no hangovers exactly. on Monday morning. So it, can, it could work 24-7 if it wanted to. Look at that. Amazing. Now, that's coming online. I mean, that's a great, that's a great idea, and it's even, even better that it's an Australian invention. So there's a couple of robotic bricklayers that are already out there and being used in mm -hmm, America. Mm -hmm. They're not that much quicker, but they are quicker. They don't have smoke breaks. They don't have lunch breaks. They don't have sick bath days. bathroom breaks. They don't have sick days. Yeah. They don't have RDOs. Holidays. <laughs> they don't go on holiday. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of innovation that we need, to be, we need to be bringing in. I look out of the window of my office in North Sydney. I look across the harbour, um, a new building, 100 Mount Street that's going up. Now, whilst it may have some new technology in that building, if you look at it purely as a construction form, it's 40-odd stories high. It's got 3-metre, 3.2-metre floor-to-floor. It's got a steel frame around the outside. It's concrete. It's got concrete columns. It's got a lift core. Same. Same old, same old. And all we do is put a little bit of electronic technology and gizmo inside it and wrap the building in a different facade mm -hmm. and think we've got a modern building. Well, I don't think it is a modern building. I think the whole concept of a building needs to change. And then the other issue we need to think about is sustainability and energy yeah. conservation. So where in all these buildings are we considering what's going to be happening at the end of their effective life? Call that 50 years. Mm -hmm. 
we knock a building over, all that material has to go off to landfill. Yeah. That's such a waste. It is. It's a waste of resources, it's a waste of money, and it's a blight on the landscape. We haven't got that much space left to fill. So we've got a real issue in the world, this is not just Australia, with 2050 being a very serious date. We'll have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, barring a war or natural disaster or plague. Ten, the planet can't sustain 10 billion people. It's not just the amount of people and the heat they give off, it's the, it's the, the food mm-hmm. and the water, the resources, they, the, the resources yeah. that they consume. Mm-hmm. And then the waste that they generate, that all has to go in, mm-hmm. into landfill, into mm-hmm. wherever. So there's some really good inventions out there. India have got a couple. There's a few in Asia about recycling materials, mm-hmm. making roads out of plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got green concrete, but that should be going further. We've got to find a better way of, 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 of building, and we've got to find some better materials to build with. Right. And something that could be recyclable at the end of the day. Where's all the greenery? Where's the water conservation in the buildings? It doesn't come in to a commercial building. That calculation is there, not really there. As a general rule, it's not there. We don't consider those things. We don't consider the cost of heating and cooling these buildings and running these buildings. It's not until you move in afterwards that you can you know, look at it and come up with the concept of there could have been a better way of doing it. Okay, so let's let's talk a better way. Let's you like your future proofing. I've heard that you know something about that. So tell me what would be the three most important things in terms of a built environment that we could do today that that would future-proof, you know, at least from a sustainable perspective, if I can put it that way, um, from, you know, an energy perspective, I guess guess it's about about the same thing. What would be the three things that governments or developers would be looking at, should be looking at now? Um, In terms of energy... It's always struck me that this country doesn't have enough solar usage. Well, the sun doesn't shine here. It's <laughs> apparently, apparently, Germany is, the, is known as a sunny country. And there's not enough land in between no, of course Sydney not. and Perth to, to put solar cells. <laughs> um, and the same with, with wind farming. Now, it may be that it's expensive and people are running a, um, a payback model that says it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well... If you run that payback model over 50 years, I'm sure it would work. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk has already demonstrated with his lithium um, mm-hmm. battery plant down in South Australia mm-hmm. the payback that can occur. So we're looking at a, a, um, a lithium battery production facility up in Townsville okay. at the moment. This is, this is the way we have to be looking ahead. Forget coal. I know that's a very politically contentious I think we issue. just lost a, lost a prime minister over <laughs> that just recently, but keep, keep going. You're not thinking of running running for public office anytime soon. We've got to have a better way of using resources. Sure, we've got resource, but coal is not good for the atmosphere. It's not good for the ozone. We should be looking at how we can change the world 
not just for our children, but for our grandchildren, our grandchildren's children. Because the impact that human race has had over the past 50 years has been dramatic. And if we carry on at this rate, we're going to be in real trouble. So there's one issue around energy and finding a better way to um, produce energy and conserve energy. Mm -hmm. I think another one is around, if we're calling it sustainable, about sustaining the planet, is around our transportation. So what are we going to be doing in 50 to 100 years' time in terms of transportation? Right. I would doubt very much we're going to be driving cars in mm-hmm. the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Most car manufacturers have mandated they will not be producing petrol or diesel cars by 2040. 2022, I think, Hyundai, um, Mini, BMW Mini have talked about it. Right. Um, so that's coming on pretty quick. The development in electric cars has come on exponentially in the last five years. It's going to be a hobby of the rich to drive your own car. Mm-hmm. And God forbid you had a manual car as well. That is purely for the rich. Because the more and more electric cars and autonomous vehicles mm. come on, the less likelihood there is of a crash. Yep. If they're all autonomous, they're all sensing each other so it's only the poor person driving around in a manual car who's got their own wits about them or not and their own instincts to avoid a collision that are going to be the dangerous ones so ultimately not even ultimately soon electric cars autonomous vehicles we then need to be talking about drone delivery of goods right amazon are doing it already Mm mm-hmm Uh, Uber drones. That is on the cards now. So in Dubai, you can move from uh, international to domestic via a drone, a passenger drone. We've got the concept of flying cars. They're a little bit unaffordable at the moment, but that's where we need to get to. We've got to get people off the street. We've got too many people coming. Everyone wants to have a car. Too many cars on the road. The whole concept of a car on a road, if you, if you, you know, t- could take a helicopter view of a country and you saw the, the grid, the network of roads, why are we putting cars on roads and giving them a, giving them a fixed path that they can follow mm. when we should be able to have a far more free-flowing transportation system, mm-hmm. which is not the road. That's up in the air. So we're talking 50, 100 years, 200 years, right? We're not talking about 2020. But, but we're still going to finally get our flying cars like we were all promised. We will get our flying cars. You can buy a flying car now. And you and some of these, you don't even need a pilot's license. Wow. So you can drive along the road, fill it up with petrol, drive it out into a field and take off. So they're a single man, they're a two and three person vehicles and they go from about 200,000 up to maybe two million. So it's not for everybody just at the moment. And I understand there's a lot of regulation around airspace and air rights. But, you know, you look back at some of these old sci-fi movies. They had these concepts. Look back at the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. 1963. Yes. How many of those concepts that were in the Jetsons have come to fruition? They had mobile phones. They had internet. They had computers. Mm-hmm. They had flying cars. Mm-hmm. We haven't got there yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think in terms of sustainability of the planet, we've got to 
be careful what we do and how we look after the planet and uh, on the actual planet and within the ozone because we don't need to be destroying that. We should be able to try and capture the capacity of the sun. I think if we could fully capture the capacity of the sun, I forget what the stats are now, it's something ridiculous like two, two days worth of capture uh, could power Manhattan for a year. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. So we don't really get hold of the sun, mm-hmm. despite you saying, you know, there is no sun in Australia. There probably isn't, which is why we have never ventured down that solar path. Mm. Um, we need to look at more sustainable, reusable building materials. Mm-hmm. So let's just move to the suburbs a little bit. One of the issues we've got with housing is the affordability. Yep. Or lack of affordability. Mm-hmm. So why is housing so expensive? One, the land. We can't do much about the land because it's in, in demand. But the actual building. So the materials are going up, labor's going up. So it's costing more and more to build a house. You build a house, you live in there for 30 years, you add an extension onto it, you build a family, your family grow they move on mm-hmm. you need to downsize mm-hmm. so you sell your house and go on nothing's really helped you helped your kids in terms of prefabrication and modularization if we can get over the concept of everything needs to look bespoke how about flat pack type homes okay where you want to add another room because you've just had a child you can add a little room then you have another child you add another room or maybe you add the second floor then, as times change and you need to start scaling back, you can flat-pack down the rooms that you don't need. Now, those flat-packed rooms could form another house. So your children moving off could then take that component of your flat-packed home and go and build their home. They've now got something they can afford. You haven't had to demolish everything and throw it into the landfill. So you've been able to recycle, and overall it's affordable. And you haven't then had to move out of your community that you love with your neighbours that mm-hmm. you love mm-hmm. and, and where you're safe. Right. All right. So as you're getting older and older, and this happens to my, my mum in England, she's 80. She doesn't want to move from where she is. She was actually born in the house that she's in now. Wow. She moved away and she's, she came back when she got married to my dad. But she's got no intention of moving away from that house even though it's not practical for her because she's very comfortable there. She likes the neighbourhood. She knows the banker. She knows the guy up at the bookshop and the optician, the neighbours. So she wants to stay there. But it's not ideal for her. Mm. It's not practical. She should be moving somewhere else, somewhere smaller that was over one storey that was closer to one of my brothers that we could look after it. But that's what happened. So imagine if you can get a concept that is, one, recyclable, two is affordable and is far more amenable to people in their older years and I don't think that's that hard I don't think that's too far out of the realms of consideration but we don't seem to be getting there because we're fixated on we want a one-off bespoke design house and I don't want to look like my neighbours and all of that drives the prices up if we can get over it and just say it's a home and what's inside is different, forget what it looks like from the outside, then we'll start to reduce the prices. And then that leads on to one of the reasons that you need to work so hard right. and stick with your 40-hour week is because everything's so unaffordable. 
So our food is expensive. Mm -hmm. Our energy is outrageously expensive. expensive yep. Our homes are expensive. Mm -hmm. So how do you ultimately get to a point where you're not working 40 or 50 hours a week? Because we have to consider that. Because we've got AI, robotics, and machine learning coming into the industry. It's going to affect blue-collar and white-collar working. And that is no, there is no denying that, that is going to happen. So we've got the first... We've got the first robotic law firm in Darwin. Not a human being. Mm -hmm. Law firm, no humans. So accountants. Uh, so the first, the first law firm with a soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Um, so the finance industry, uh, accounting and legal, are going to be heavily impacted by AI and robotics. Hundreds of thousands of jobs. And that's going to come into, obviously going to come into blue-collar working. We've already just talked about the uh, robotic bricklayers, but it moves into the office space as well. And it'll be impacting in what we do. We're working on innovation um, programs within our business. And I know that somewhere we will be introducing some kind of machine learning or mm -hmm. AI. I'm not trying to make our staff redundant, but we're trying to be competitive and progressive as, as every other professional services business is going to be. But in an ideal world, I want us, our business to be getting to a six-hour day. Everyone gets paid for eight, but yeah. I want us to be efficient and effective that we can deliver our service in six hours and not in eight hours. And then how about we got away from a five-day week? How about we went to four and ultimately we went to three? Wow, this sounds sounds fantastic. So, so the future is um, cheap elect uh, renewable electricity, flying cars, um, much cheaper homes, and a, a work when we want scheme. Um, this sounds perfect. Actually, you're happy with that? Okay. I am. Can I, I, I sign you I up wanna, now? I'm signing up right now. Thank you very much, Nick Deeks, managing director of WT Partnership. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I dare say that. I think we'll be talking again. Excellent. This sounds fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design, and until next time, see you again.